You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Genesis chapter 2. We've completed Genesis 1, which kind of the first chunk finishes at Genesis 2, chapter 3, or chapter 2, verse 3. And, and this first chapter is a prologue to the book of Genesis. It's laying the foundations, it's going to the beginning of everything. God is sovereign, He is supreme, He is in control, He's the creator. He made everything and is the undeniable Lord of all. And the creation is intended to join God in this eternal rest that we saw a slight picture of at the beginning of chapter 2. And we could say chapter 1, in a sense, is a heavenly view of creation, looking down upon it from heaven. And chapter 2, maybe it's something of an earthly view. We're, we're zooming in on humankind, humanity. And we reopen that work of creation to highlight the role of mankind and to begin the story of mankind as God's image bearers and God's creation. So today we're going to begin just with four verses, uh, starting this um, next section of Genesis. So would you hear now God's word from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We know we've moved past the prologue of Genesis when we come to the beginning of verse four that says that has this distinctive phraseology. These are the generations of. This happens 10 times in Genesis and it indicates the beginning of a new section that's following the history of a certain person, or this is the only exception to that. It's not the generations of a person. It's talking about the generations of the creation of heaven and earth. So in this case, we're, we're, we're on the heels of creation, looking at the generations of the beginnings of creation of humankind here. This refers to this, this time of the generations of the heavens and of the earth. It refers to this time period of God's creation as the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this section zooms in from the totality of creation all the way down to mankind. Through chapter four, chapters two, three, and four, we're looking at what mankind is. What is humanity? What we were made to be? how we were created to glorify God, how we fell into sin, and how God provides redemption. There's so much packed into these few chapters. And we'll get to see this as we work through it piece by piece. But there's one distinctive character of these few chapters. And it's, and it's a phraseology here of the, the phrase, Lord God. The Lord God, you see that here in verse four. In the day that the Lord God made the earth. And heavens, this phrase is used three times in just our four short verses tonight. It's used 20 times in chapters two and three. 
You see, Lord, we've said this before, but you see, Lord is, is in a special typeface. It's that small caps. You know, the O and the R and the D are capital letters, but they're smaller. And this is, this is telling us in English that it's a very special word in Hebrew that's being used. This is that special word denoting God's covenantal nature, his relationship with humankind. This is the word Yahweh, the special name of God, Yahweh. And so the Lord God, God is the word Elohim, which is a more generic term for God, more of a status, more of a a title. So Yahweh is this personal covenantal name and, and God, Elohim, is his title or his position. It's a very precise way to refer to the creator of heaven and earth as the covenant Lord of mankind and the creator, the sovereign over all things. And we see tonight what the Lord God has done The nature of mankind, as he's created it, reveals our dependence upon the Lord God. The nature of mankind reveals our dependence upon the Lord God. Going to have two points this evening. First is verses five and six is when man was created. And then second, verse seven, is really the bulk of our time is how man was created. So let's consider first verses five and six, when man was created. Verse five says, when so we're having a, a time frame here. This was the time when man was created. And specifically, he says, there's no bush in the field. Um, no bush of the field was in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up. This bush probably refers to non-edible vegetation and the plant probably refers to edible vegetation. And so there was no vegetation. And why was there no vegetation? Well, it goes on to tell us there was no rain. There is no man to work and tend the vegetation. And there seems to be some kind of flooding of the whole ground. The land was not yet fit for vegetation. You see the word mist in verse six. There is a mist going up from the land. In the ESV, there's a little footnote here. It says, alternately, there's another translation, spring. And I agree that maybe that alternate is probably better. Mist is probably not the best way to understand this word. Another option is the word river. What's probably being indicated is there's an underground spring that would periodically periodically release water and flood the whole face of the land. And so they couldn't grow vegetation because the water was covering all of the land as the spring would give life and give water. So there's an indication here of when man was created, but it's really getting at the why. Man was needed to prepare the land for the growth of this vegetation to control the waters by building dams and channels for the water, to irrigate the land with this natural water without flooding the vegetation. So even in this timing, when God created man, we see something of a purpose for humanity, to work the land and to cultivate it. And this is entirely consistent with the commission God gave to Adam and Eve in chapter one. They were called to fill the earth and subdue it. Why? Because they're image bearers. They represent God. They are God's image on the earth. They were to subdue and this subdue the untamed creation by bringing about order and working the ground. And we'll see next time that they were placed in this holy garden of Eden. They're placed, that one place on earth where God would come and dwell with his people. And they were to keep this place holy by their work, ensuring that the vegetation could be brought forth here and then ultimately to all the earth. Here we see when man was created, we see even here a dependence upon God. 
Their whole commission was dependent upon God as God's image bearers. They needed him in order to fulfill this commission. And so this two-verse statement of when man was created helps us see a small glimpse into what we were created to do, to fill the earth and to subdue it. But then we come to the actual creation of man in verse 7. So we come, secondly, how man was created. As with the prologue of chapter one, the creator of mankind here is clear. It is the Lord God. His action of creation of man is described here with with two verbs you see in verse seven. Then the Lord God first formed. It's a very important verb and it actually often has to do with a potter who's forming clay, forming a pot out of raw clay, who forms and shapes it into something beautiful. So God here is forming, taking materials, the dust of the earth, and forming it as a potter. It's used often in scripture of God forming new life in the womb. Isaiah 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Is that Hear that? He says, who formed you from the womb. Even in the womb, God forms. God is making. Jeremiah 1, 5. God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So this is God making, God forming the hands of God, as it were, bringing into shape humankind. And he formed the man of the dust of the ground, we see in verse 7. Of the dust of the ground, mankind was made of normal organic materials, Humankind has a natural biology. Our chemistry is like that of other organisms. We are of the earth. And because of that, we are limited. We have natural bodily functions. We require food. We require sleep. We don't have infinite knowledge. Our human nature is corporeal. It's bodily. Our human nature is fleshly. And this is good. Our body is not something to be escaped. Our body is not something that one day we can't wait to be released from. Our bodies are good things as God created and intended them to be. They were given to us by God. Our flesh is given to us by God. Even after sin entered the world, God continues to form us. Every person is formed by God. He has given us the bodies we have. Yes, they're marred by the fall. Yes, we'll we'll circle back to this and talk about it. Yes, our bodies don't work as they should. Yes, they are corrupted because of sin. But to hate this body is to hate the God who formed it. God formed you, your body, your person. And this body is part of your nature. It's who you are. And so a rejection of our bodies is a rejection of God himself. And particularly in our day, a transhumanist ideology is becoming more pervasive. That I can and should rise above my embodied humanity. In many cases, some say that I can change my gender, for example. That it's a good thing to have no distinction between my humanity and computers. It's good to embed computer chips in my brain. And and maybe at some point, humans won't know what's the difference between computers thinking and humans thinking. We're on dangerous ground here. We need to protect humanity. Humans are embodied people. 
We, one way we deny our humanity is to think we don't need the physical presence of, of humanity, of other, of community. We don't need the physical presence of others <clears throat> for worship, for other fellowship. We deny our humanity to think that we ought to evolve into a race of, of some kind of augmented humanity. We need each other in the flesh. We need hugs in the flesh, or if you prefer, handshakes in the flesh. We need one another in the flesh. This is how God made us. And to think we ought to rise above that is to deny who we are as formed people. So the first verb is formed. He formed us, speaks to our humanity, our fleshliness, our body. And second, we see that God breathed. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This idea of breathing has clear connections throughout all of Scripture with the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is told to prophesy to these dry bones. You remember? These dry bones in the valley. Ezekiel is called to prophesy, to prophesy to them. And as he did, as he preached to the dry bones, the breath of God came through the valley. And what happens? Came rattle, they, they began rattling. And the bones, they came to life. A vivid image of God's spirit breathing upon death and bringing them back to life. And that's imagery that Jesus had in, in John chapter 3. The spirit of God is at work, bringing the dead to life. Jesus, you may remember this in John chapter 20, after his death and his resurrection, he appears to his disciples in the locked upper room. It says he appeared here, even though the doors were locked. They're not sure how. And it says this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus there again breathed upon them and said, I'm leaving my spirit with you, the Holy Spirit with you. And of course, once he ascended and, and the day of Pentecost, when the spirit came upon all of the believers, this breathing is associated with the Holy Spirit. And so here the supernatural action is clear. This isn't simple creation of generic life like animals or plants. This is clearly different. This is not simple creation of the animal kingdom. The effect here was that the man became a living creature. What's happened here is God, by his spirit, is, an impl is implanting the soul and life into man. Being made in God's image, mankind has a soul, an immaterial aspect to us that now reflects our God, and even more than that, allows us to commune with him. Because of our soul, we can know God. Because of our soul, we have moral capacity. Animals don't have moral capacities. They have no soul. They are not moral beings, but because we have received the breath of God, every person ever, ever living has this soul and has moral capacity that's rational and reasonable. We're not merely more evolved animals. Human beings are of a different kind altogether. We have these souls that no other creature has. And this soul cries out dependence upon God. This soul says we are made in his image and we need him. It testifies to him that he exists. It shows us his law, what he requires. That we are created to worship him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. 
that we were not made for our own glory, to display our own greatness to the world, but to show all creation the glory of our creator. So God breathed in us and created the soul of humankind. And he still does that with every single person. Human nature, as we learn from this passage, is both body and soul. It is formed and it is breathed. These two constituent parts make up human nature, humanity. Both are are vital. One without the other is not human nature. And we see here, this is a special act of God. This is not the end of a process of millions of years where finally a pre-human creature evolved far enough where it can finally be called human. The act of breathing into man a soul was a special act of God. And the act of forming the body of man out of dust was a special, definitive act of God. This Adam was a real man, actually formed by God as scripture describes here. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing to consider what this human nature was in this state of perfection before the fall. Because our interaction with human nature is a fallen human nature. The human nature, both body and soul, that we know is one that has been corrupted by sin because indeed, as we'll come to, Adam and Eve fell, corrupting our natures. They sinned against God. They rejected him as the Lord God, as the Yahweh Elohim. They said, no, we would rather be God. In doing so, they defaced the image of God and man, and both body and soul were corrupted. Genesis 3, 19, God is uh, giving the curse after the fall to mankind, and he says this to, to the man, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says something similar, where the preacher says, all go to one place, All are from the dust, and to dust all return. You've probably been to a funeral or a graveside service where it's been said, this is the most famous English funeral committal service, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is the result of the fall. This is not how we were intended to be, but because of the fall, our dust goes back to dust. We are delivered into the ground where we return Ashes to ashes. The body is now subject to decay and ultimately to death. This is the human nature we experience. Our bodies are subject to death and and our soul as well as experiences corruption. That communion with God that Adam shared and Eve shared with God in in the garden has been disrupted. They were expelled from the garden, that place of communion with God, The soul is now morally curved in on itself and it defaults now to glorying in oneself, not in glorying in the creator. And now we are subject to God's judgment. The goodness of humanity is distorted and this is what we live with day by day. And even after redemption, we still live subject to the corruption of sin. I think we feel that every single day. Adam forfeited forfeited moral uprightness and communion with God for all of us. And I think you feel this in your bones. The world is not how this is supposed to be. It's not how we were created to be. The body is not how it was supposed to be. You feel the aches and pains of age. 
you get sick. This is not right. We are born with, with abnormalities and even deformities. We all groan and cry out for redemption. And the only hope for human nature is perfect human nature. The only hope for human nature is to be redeemed by the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. I said this quote before. You probably re remember this, but if not, that's why I'm saying it again. Gregory of Nazianzus was an early church father from 329 to 380. He's from Cappadocia, which is uh, modern-day northern Turkey. It's on the, the Black Sea and, and uh, area near there. And he said a statement that's been repeated in theology classes ever since. He says this, the unassumed is the unhealed. The unassumed is the unhealed. He's getting at who is our savior? Who is Jesus Christ? If he did not assume your nature, he cannot heal your nature. And so he says, Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, assumed fully the human nature that we all have. Jesus assumed our full human nature, both body and soul, and has healed it. He has redeemed it. He has atoned for it. He has justified it. He has sanctified it, and he will glorify it. Our shorter catechism underlines this fact. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. A true body, a true human fleshly body is what Jesus had, but he also had the full humanity. He had a, what they said, a reasonable soul. In other words, a soul that can reason, that understands, that knows communion with God. Jesus Christ had true humanity, both body and soul. What hope do we have in this world? It is only that Jesus Christ will recreate our humanity to be healed of all our diseases to conform our human nature in a state of righteousness and holiness that can then never be lost. So, so many theologians have taught us, we're not simply going back, our, our hope is not simply going back to the Garden of Eden, or as Nancy Guthrie has said, and so well, our promise is better than Eden. That's why Paul says, we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is life-giving spirit. This is interesting language but it's getting at by the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. He is giving us renewed bodies fit for eternity with God. Now he also uses the word spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean immaterial or anything like that. Spiritual simply means worked by the Holy Spirit. These spiritual bodies are bodies that the spirit is working by the power of Christ to give us in the resurrection so at the resurrection of the dead, we will have these imperishable, glorious, powerful bodies and souls of which God's word speaks. We will no longer bear the defaced image of God given to us by our first father, Adam, but we will bear the true image of the man of heaven. Do you yearn for that? In your bodies, do you yearn for that? In your soul, do you desire to know your creator with such intimacy? It's only Jesus Christ that can give that. And it is, the, it is the gospel of grace that what we say is it has been done, done, done by him. 
And we are just merely awaiting for that day where all things will be made right, where the corruption of our nature will be undone, where we will be in the glorious presence of our God forever and ever. If our nature at creation reveals a a deep dependence upon God, how much more does our corrupted nature show us we depend upon God every single day? And in redemption, even more. We need his grace and mercy. We need every promise he makes. We come offering nothing, but in his kindness, he has condescended, taking upon the true human nature that was formed and breathed upon to save us poor sinners. We need not our own works of righteousness, but we need to cling to the one who took on himself our frail and finite nature, Jesus Christ assumed it, and by his gracious work, he healed it for all of those who look to him by faith. Please know, you can never redeem your nature. There's not enough good you could ever do if you had all eternity to make your nature right. You need Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us take heart. Let us look to him and trust in the one who can the one who has redeemed our nature, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the savior of sinners, the healer of our body and soul nature. What a glorious king, what a glorious savior. Let us look to him in prayer. Gracious God, daily our own humanity testifies to our need of a savior. And what an incredible thing it is that God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, has taken upon himself our nature, body and soul, to redeem us, poor, miserable sinners. We thank you that there's a great inheritance awaiting us. We thank you that we will be confirmed in a renewed humanity, in a perfection of all we were meant to be. Give us faith to grasp this, to trust in you. Give us hope that propels us during dark and difficult trials. Give us love for you and our neighbor. Thank you, O God, for your great salvation. We glorify you and praise your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.